Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, uh, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us today. We're going to be having a great conversation with Dr. Teresa Zink and her new book called The COVID Chronicles, How Essential Workers Cope. And I think this is such a very, very important topic. But as usual, I'm going to give a couple of shout-outs before I introduce you to uh, Dr. Zink and we get on with our conversation. This is a live show, so if you're listening and you want to call in and join the conversation, you can do that by calling 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. Now, if you liked our opening music, it was called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and I will be forever grateful uh, that they allow us to use that song for our opening. It's just uh, one of those things that just is upbeat and always fills me. So you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms if you'd like. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio was created So we talk about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal is to raise all voices all around the world at all ages and stages. So maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. If you're living with dementia, if you're caring for somebody personally or professionally, maybe you're a researcher, maybe you're a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout that's got a cool project going on, everyone is welcome here. So reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com, and we will take it from there. Now, I always like to give a shout-out to a few organizations, and I would um, I, I just did a show on Tuesday. Actually, it was on Wednesday, um, and it was about Mods Ventures, and I absolutely love this uh, organization. They have three challenges where they're going to give seed money of fifty to a hundred thousand uh, dollars to people. One is for adaptive clothing. Uh, two is uh, regarding aphasia, and the third one is regarding respite care. So check out Mods Ventures. Uh, to learn more about that or go back and uh, to our ar- archives and you can listen to that interview. Um, they are just um, really a very cool organization. They're willing to answer and any of your questions that you might have and applications are, are very simple. I also want to give a shout out to Lorenzo's House. They are doing Lorenzo's Camp, which is for youth um, that have a parent or guardian who is diagnosed with um, younger onset Alzheimer's disease. And that's going to be a virtual camp uh, Monday, June 21st from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that is central time. And again, you can just reach out to us for more information uh, regarding that. I also want to give a shout out to a couple of organizations. I'm going to be speaking at One um, is out in Delaware, and they are having a a wonderful virtual event that they are doing that is absolutely fantastic, and it's free. They've got lots and lots of great speakers that you can tap into, uh, which is always amazing in and of itself. And so you can go to either our our blog or our homepage at alzheimerspeaks.com and learn more, but it's the Virtual Delaware Aging Expo, May 25th to the 26th, and that'll be from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 
and um, you know register now it is free and the other one that I want to um, tell you about is another public event I'm doing is called Together for Dementia and it is the 2021 Dementia Global Challenge and that is through um, uh, through the BRACE organization. And again, you can go to our site and find out more information regarding that, but they've got some wonderful, wonderful speakers lined up. Next, I'm just going to give a couple of shout outs and reminders. Coral Health is still allowing people to download their apps for free during COVID. I don't know how much longer this is going to last, but take advantage of it. You can get both their music first in Coral Faith for free. And uh, just go to Coral Health, C-O-R-O Health.com. And then the memory cafes are starting to come online. And so you can find out more information about those at the memory cafe directory. And of course, I would be amiss if I didn't give a shout out to our new global resource directory called Dementia Map, which is free access to all for um, everything dementia, it's kind of your roadmap to care. And uh, you can visit DementiaMap.com for more information there. We are going to hear from the Footbar Walker, and then we're going to have an exciting conversation with Dr. Zink. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Footbar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Footbar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. I absolutely love that walker. It is really powerful at reducing falls and injuries to both the care partner and the person who needs that mobility tool. So check out the Footbar Walker, please. Um, now, I, I, I'm so excited to introduce you to not only a wonderful physician, but to a personal friend of mine um, who happens to be a family physician with 30 years of experience. And that includes not only caring for patients, but teaching, uh, doing research and administration. So she just has this wide brush um, that she has used in her career and just she's filled with knowledge. I was lucky enough to meet her through a blogging class back in, I want to say it was 2010, and we've stayed in contact ever since. In fact, she was the one that introduced me to the wonderful Hollywood film called His Neighbor Phil, which is now a timeless love, which I had the opportunity to help them with their marketing plan and become a sponsored uh, um, a platinum sponsor and have shown that film all over the country. And I can't wait to get back to doing that. So I, I can't thank her enough because that film is absolutely amazing. And it has pulled so many communities and individuals together um, by doing our screenings and talkbacks. Um, I have personally always valued her friendship and the amazing work that she does. She has this humanitarian spirit which all I can really tell you is wow. Um, she is just one deep, kind soul. Um, Dr. Zink is currently a professor at Brown University in Rhode Island, and she's also the recipient of the U.S. Fulbright Scholar Award. And during COVID, she had her foot in two worlds, one caring for her patients and and advocating also for her sister and mother in long-term care. And so today we are going to discuss her new book called COVID Chronicles, How Essential Workers Cope, which I know you're going to find as fascinating as I did. So welcome. Is it okay if I call you Trace instead of Dr. Zink? 
Okay. I, I like you said, I am so mm-hmm. excited to have you on the show. I just um I have adored you from the the moment we met. And your work in this world has been incredible. And this is such an important topic. Um what what drove you to to write the book? Well, it was really um the way I coped. And let me just say first of all, thank you, Lori, for the very uh generous introduction. Um, I was caring for patients. Uh, I was doing telehealth. In fact, when COVID broke, I was in Palestine. And um, it, 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 uh, patients in Palestine were uh, coming down with COVID before the U.S. In fact, a, a Korean church group had visited, and they closed down Bethlehem. And I was in Nablus, a town uh, about a two-hour drive away, and it was just a matter before it uh, hit uh, where I was staying. And they closed the school, but I was able to get special permission to continue to go to the university and help them with a report that I was writing. But as they started canceling classes, uh, or rather canceling planes, I realized I better get back. Uh, otherwise, I wasn't going to get back into the U.S. easily. And, and I went through New York the day before they uh, closed uh, New York, and I would have been standing in line for eight hours. Um, so it was interesting to see another culture deal with it and then continue to work virtually with them. And um, I quarantined when I got back um, and then started doing telehealth and quickly realized what a difficult thing we were asking people to do. You know, the U.S. were not used to wearing masks, uh, and the social isolation, uh, I think, was difficult for a lot of people. But the clincher was when my mom and my sister came down with COVID, and then I needed to, uh, you know, writing is how I cope. And so that's really what uh, gave me the idea to write the book. Okay. Can you can you give us a little bit of background about um, your mom and your sister? You know, I had mentioned that uh, in your intro that they were living in community, um, but can you tell us like what types of communities they were living in? Because I know, I mean, I can't tell you how many personal friends I had with their own stories of dealing with this and how it affected not only their loved one but the whole family. And um, and then the loss with many of them, you know, lost their loved ones during this time and not being able to, you know, grieve the way we've always known how to. Right. Absolutely. So just let me add, um, I was an English major way back when and uh, had to start keeping a journal when I was in a creative writing class in high school. So writing is something I've always done. Um, and the book um Uh, kind of idea was born uh, as I, you know, tried to connect with my mom and my sister. My sister uh, is Down syndrome. She was the second Down syndrome in my family. I was the oldest, and we had six kids. And after she had a a hospitalization uh, in uh, in which she was very sick, she was uh, admitted to the nursing home. Uh, and was on hospice that then graduated from hospice. She was no longer able to be in her group home facility. And my parents wanted to keep her there because they had moved into an assisted living cottage, and my dad would go visit her in the morning, and my mom would visit her in the afternoon. My dad passed when he was 92, um, and as my mom's health failed, uh, she was not able to visit Fran as much, and so we were worried that that was a good place for her, Then my mom fell and broke her shoulder, uh, and this is a common story for many, uh, particularly women. Uh, You know, she was no longer able to be in her independent cottage and moved into assisted living. And there are, you know, many wonderful things about uh, nursing homes. You know, the U.S. does it differently than in Palestine. You know, extended families take care of uh, elders or, or differently abled. Uh, And it's, you know, extended families are a little different there than they are here. But family uh, would go and visit my sister, visit my mom. 
um, and fix the voicemail machine that wasn't working or make sure Fran's laundry was done or, uh, you know, take her out to get her hair cut. But, you know, all that changed with COVID. Uh, you know, we weren't going in to visit and physically do things. We had to figure out how to do it virtually. Um, and that's on the phone or uh, thank God for Facebook and Skype at the time. However, if you're not digitally savvy, and my mother wasn't, uh, and she often uh, didn't put in her hearing aids, uh, you know, it got very difficult. <laughs> um, and I know I'm not alone in, in that. Um, uh, you know, you we could go and talk through the window to my sister Fran because um, she was on the first floor, but my mom was on the third floor. And so uh, we could stand, you know, three stories down and she would be on her phone, but you couldn't really see her. Um, and so that ability to touch or hug or read facial expressions uh, just was gone. Uh, and, you know, these were, I think, very hard times for our family and, you know, for lots of people around the world. Oh, definitely. Well, and it was nice at least they were in the same building, too, you know. Um, even though it was harder in some ways, it was probably easier on the family in others because they were in one in one location with that. Um, they I, were, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, they were in the same complex, um, but, you know, probably about three, plo- three blocks apart. <laughs> Oh, so, okay. And I, okay. Yeah, and one of the one, so they couldn't see each other. Um, you know, when before COVID, uh, my sister would wheel my uh, Fran over to see my mom, or we even had it arranged that transportation would take Fran over to see my mom for lunch. Um, until my mom pulled her little refrigerator down on her leg. Oh. <laughs> you know, oh. so so the frailties, you know, the frailties of aging, aging um, you know, were really at play uh, uh, before COVID. And none of those are easy to handle. But, uh, you know, I think with COVID, that inability to be there and really see what was going on, uh, you know, is, re- is really a challenge. Oh, it is. Uh, I remember getting phone calls from people initially from our um, – memory cafe and people that I had worked with over the years. And I remember one in particular, the the poor wife, she was like hysterical. She was so, so beyond herself and so distraught and she could barely talk. And she said, I don't know if I'll ever see him again. You know, if, if he'll die, if I'll die, or if when we do, he'll even know me. And I mean, the things that were just spiraling in her head that she just, you know, I mean, that was it. That It was just all consuming. And so people coped with this in so many different fashions on so many different levels, um, but but very devastating. And none of us like to get out of our comfort zone. And this one just like flipped the pan right over and just dumped us all out and said, we're starting from scratch on this, folks. Um, so it was just really a very interesting um, process to to note, I do want to um, note, because you talked about your writing, um, you've written several books. So you've got The, the Country Doctor Revisited, um, Sessions of a, a Sin Eater, and um, and now you've got uh, this beautiful book, uh, COVID Chronicles on, on Essential Workers and, and How They Cope. And so, plus you've got a blog that has lots of reflections. Um, you have traveled all over the all over the the world, really, um, and have have experienced. You know, you're talking about Palestine, in terms of how different we are, and I think that's one of the things. I I know for myself, I, I feel really privileged to be able to talk to people around the world, because boy, it really puts you in a different perspective of what we have, or even what our values and our perceptions are here, compared to other parts of the world. And um, I've found that really fascinating, too, but it's also helped me learn to cope a little bit differently. Has has that had an effect on you as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that ability to step outside yourself and your experience and have a different perspective is, um, you know, is really uh, important. Um, and I think that was one of the things that was interesting for me, 
during our last year with COVID was I was so frustrated with what was happening with my mom and my sister. So, uh, for example, when my sister um, was not able to get a bath because the nursing home facility was trying to work out their safe bathroom, and so she got a bed bath. And it just didn't count for her. And so, she, you know, she was really upset about that. But on the other side, you know, because of the, you know, being a healthcare provider, I understood the stress that the staff were under. I had patients who were uh, aides in nursing homes, and I knew how hard they were working, how frustrated they were, that they didn't have uh, adequate uh, masks and personal protective equipment or PPE early on. So even though I was really frustrated with my sister and her, what was happening for her, I also knew that, you know, people cared about her and what wasn't happening wasn't necessarily their fault, that there was so much that was just not in our control. Uh, and that ability to kind of see things from both perspectives, uh, I think really helped me try to have the patience to cope, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and give the benefit of the doubt. Give the benefit of the doubt. Okay, okay. Um, you know, one of the things that you know you had mentioned is, you know, your your family in long term um, care. Can you explain to us in a, maybe a little bit more detail in how did that change them? Did it have an effect? I know so many people just talk about, um, you know, the depression, the isolation, and what were some of the maybe symptoms in terms of change that that you and, and family members saw, and maybe staff as well. Yeah. So I'll talk about Fran first. So Fran mm-hmm. was 57, and she's Down syndrome. And she is um, about, just so you can picture her, she's got – these beautiful brown deer-like eyes and uh, brown hair that's uh, grain. And she's about as uh, wide as she is tall. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she's in a wheelchair. And so uh, being in the nursing home, uh, she, you know, has not gotten a lot of activity. And we, because my mother had uh, been unable to visit her on a regular basis since her health was failing, just before COVID, she had started going to a day activity program. And then suddenly she was uh, with COVID, the nursing home shut down. So she couldn't go out to activities. And um, she was bored to tears. Uh, And, you know, she loved to watch TV. And way back when she was younger, she went to Montessori. And so she does basic reading and math. And she's quite industrious. Uh, and she loves to talk on the phone. She's very social. Uh, so she, what was interesting was to see how she coped because when I stepped back to really watch her, she was a lesson in mindfulness and a lesson in gratitude. I would call her and I'd say, how's your day going, Fran? Ah, oh, relaxing and taking it easy. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, she was very attached to when her meals were showing up, but, you know, she was just in the moment. And what are you working on, Fran? Oh, I'm reading my magazines. Uh, My one sister makes sure she gets a people's magazine um, every week. And uh, she loved to watch Ellen, you know, which was on at 4 o'clock. You didn't want to call her when Ellen was on. And uh, and then uh, also out of her mouth was, Thanks for taking my call, you know, if she called me. You're the best sister. Thank you Mm. so much. You're my favorite sister. And so gratitude. Um, And, uh, you know, just a lesson in focusing on the positive and was just really uh, a gift in that regard. Um, You know, if I could be a little bit more like her with being in the moment and, uh, you know, being grateful. Uh, I had a lot uh, that I learned from her, uh, you know, when I could slow down enough to to pay attention. Now, continuing on, my mom, it was a different story. My mom um, uh, was 90, and 
she, uh, we really saw her deteriorate. She would get to put in her, in her hearing aids or was afraid to ask for help because people were so busy. She didn't want to bother them. And so having conversations with her became more difficult. Uh, she also um, had some cataracts, which were making it more difficult for her to see. So she was not able to enjoy reading uh, like she used to and was not technology savvy. The activities directors in the facility were willing to help her Skype, but she didn't really enjoy it that much. And so our real way to connect with her was on the phone um, or to go stand three stories below her uh, window and talk to her on the phone. And so I think that isolation, uh, you know, for a while they cut out dining. And so she was in a room and it was, we really saw a deterioration with her. Uh, Once she got COVID, you know, she had a very mild case. Uh, but, you know, seemed to get more forgetful. Uh, And she had a few falls in there. And, you know, we would get these calls. uh, I've lost my wallet. I've been worried about my credit card all day. Um, You know, where where is it? Uh, And, you know, you could send the nurse in to check with her on some things, not necessarily the credit card issue. But, uh, you know, it was just really very frustrating to watch. Um, And I tried to work the system in that uh, the state that she was in had a, uh, you could get a, uh, through the ombudsman, get appointed that the patient needed an essential caregiver, uh, which would allow visits from a family member to go in and check on her. That didn't work. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of tried to work the system to try to make things easier for her. But, uh, you know, it just felt like nothing worked. It was just tough. It was tough times, and people were scrambling all over, and it seemed like the uh, there was a lot of inconsistency in how different services were were working with families. And um, and with individuals. Uh, anyways, that's what I saw. I know in, in Minnesota, and I heard that from well, people really all around the country. Even though there were guidelines established, there was still a lot of kind of flex room in terms of what that what that looked like. Um, yeah. How did did your mom and your sister did they recognize the differences in terms of of COVID and what that meant in your life? I know you mentioned your sister, you know, was um, really very, very positive and very mindful and stuff, but was it something that she talked about or acknowledged the difference or she just stayed in that space because that's who she was or is? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of it was that that's who she was. She stayed in the space. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. she was one of the first ones to come down with COVID. Um, So it was a big facility and you're right, you know, I saw other smaller facilities that were much more uh, facile and uh, creative in how they responded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Fran, you know, kind of stayed in that space. We really watched my mom deteriorate and tried to do kind of a good cop, bad cop mm-hmm. um, with, the administ- with the administration um, and to see if they couldn't be a little bit more creative uh, and eventually uh, decided to move her with her permission um, to a smaller facility, which was more of a memory care uh, place, which took a totally different approach in that their patients couldn't really understand COVID. And, you know, in reality, I don't think my mom did either um, because she would say when she was in the old facility, you know, uh, why can't I get my hair cut? You know, her long gray hair was driving her nuts because usually she kept it short and colored it. Um, And so uh, with her permission, we moved her into this other facility uh, um, that we'd gotten a referral to from uh, kind of local folks 
uh, who had who had some suggestions. And so because it was a memory care, their approach was, you know, we have somebody that can come and do hair. Uh, people, they had kept COVID out completely. Uh, so people could move around group dining because the social element was really uh, important for their clients who had more memory issues. The challenge was, is even though my mom had memory issues, she didn't recognize that she did. Um, and so uh, she, there were, of course, some people who were more severe than she was. And she said, you know, I don't belong here. However, you know, we were allowed to, family was allowed to come in and visit her, you know, with masks and, and um, face shields. Uh, and so it was a much kind of better environment for her. But, you know, she then was mourning for the old place. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we were, we were kind of damned if we did and damned if we didn't. Um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, just no easy answers. Um, and, you know, I think that was part of the, is the frustration is, you know, I know for myself and my, my sisters, you were trying to do the best you could, but it wasn't good enough. And, you know, facilities were, you know, trying hard, but, you know, we know that many of the long-term care really um, turned into many different fatalities. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the, the good news was that um, often if, during the final days, family was allowed to come in and be with their loved one, uh, you know, with hospice. Uh, but in some places, you couldn't do that. You know, you were saying uh, goodbye, you know, over the phone or over Zoom. Um, uh, and I know that that was one of the, in the, the book, I interviewed an ICU uh, physician and she kind of compared pre-COVID and during COVID in the ICU. And she said with COVID, the patients were younger, uh, you know, 40s, 50s, uh, you know, the year before they were much older and people were much sicker. And she didn't have the families there to bond with in COVID. And so her main communication with families was over, you know, FaceTime or Zoom and she was suddenly giving them difficult information and they would second guess her or um, not understand because they were not there, uh, you know, day in and day out to, to see in front of their, their own eyes how their loved one was, you know, not doing well or deteriorating. And that kind of pressure on the ICU team to suddenly become the communicator um, of difficult information to families that they tried to build trust with over the phone, but, you know, it just wasn't the same uh, mm-hmm. and, and the challenge of that. So, a, you know, a very difficult time, I think, for everyone. Yeah, um, never, never easy. And, you know, when you're, especially when you're short-staffed, you're in a crisis, you're overworked, and now you're adding more stuff to what it is you're supposed to do in terms of just trying to be efficient and caring. And, and yet not only does it affect your, your work life, but then your home life has this huge impact too, with all you're doing and stuff. I, I just, I, I don't know how the essential um, workers really even maintained their mental health with, I mean, it was like every aspect, every breath, um, it was almost being pulled from them. You know, someone else needed something else from them. <laughs> and I, I just think they're all incredible. Yeah. And that, I think that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to understand that. You know, I was struggling with my own coping. And, you know, one of the things I found was humor. Um, this particular ICU physician uh, said to me, you know, we couldn't be we couldn't be sad and overwhelmed all the time. And so we would, uh, there was one particular uh, physician that was on their team who became the prankster. And one night, um, Anna was the physician I interviewed. She was paged to uh, call Wendy, um, to, to, she was paged to call Dr. Berger um, and uh, at a phone number. And so when she um, called the number, uh, it was Wendy's. And 
she said, I'm calling for Dr. Berger. And of course the, the staff person at Wendy's said, you know, this is, this is Wendy's restaurant. Uh-huh. You know, and then Anna knew the prankster hit. I kind of ruined that joke a bit, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Um, anyway, so the prankster would do these kind of silly things um, and make everybody laugh. And uh, Anna talked a little bit about a new person joining the team because um, new residents come on, you know, periodically. And uh, took her aside at one point and said, you know, everybody is really pretty flippant here. You know, given the fact of the seriousness of which we're, you know, of, you know, we're pe- dealing with people's lives here and how sick. And Anna explained, you know, we just can't be sad all the time. You know, the, um, you know, we, we find ourselves laughing at, you know, whatever my dog did or my partner did. And, you know, it's kind of how we cope. Uh, and she said that this uh, new addition to the team came back a, a couple of weeks later with a cartoon that played out that exact scenario. So kind of understanding that humor was an important uh, release uh, for her and the team, you know, to, to show up and, and do what she needed to do every day. Well, I think uh, humor is so important on, on so many levels. And yet when we're in crisis, it seems so often it's the first thing we give up. And yet it, it's, it, you know, it, it kind of centers us, brings us back to balance, re-energizes us, and just kind of lightens the load um, when, you can, when you can share a smile or a laugh with somebody. Um, I, I just think it's such a critical, critical piece of, of life, and I think it's a really valuable piece of how we care for ourselves and for others. And that's why I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I just think that that's um, an undervalued um, high asset um, that sometimes is is overlooked. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. And you know, we know um, from science that good endorphins, you know, good brain chemicals are released when we laugh. So, Mm -hmm. you know, on a chemical level, uh, the school nurse that I interviewed, Susan, also had the gift of laughter, and she was a really funny storyteller. And I asked her, I said, so, you know, where did your laughter come from? It's clearly a a, um, way of coping for you. And she said, well, you know, I was a theater major. (laughs) And I also came from a family who uh, were jokesters, you know, so it's just in my blood. It's my go-to. Uh, mm-hmm. when things get tough. So again, underlining, um, you know, the value of not taking ourselves too seriously. Yep. Yep. I, uh, I totally yep. agree. Yeah. Totally the agree. others, you know, yeah, some of my other essential workers, uh, a few, you know, talked about prayer and really the importance of their belief and their faith and that, um, you know, they were not alone. You know, their God, however they defined their God, was with them and gave them strength. And um, Dr. Uh, Jackie uh, had an 80-year-old grandmother. Uh, and Dr. Jackie was in the South. And when she got uh, overwhelmed uh, because she was in uh, the rural South, and so uh, they were pretty uh, staffed fairly thin and um she was working very hard. She'd call grandma and grandma was well into her eighties and she couldn't see grandma because she didn't want to expose grandma to anything. And this is before uh, our vaccines and grandma would just remind her to look at her Bible and, you know, God's with you. God's holding you in your hand. And so, uh, you know, it was a good reminder that prayer is an important uh, coping uh, for many people as well. Uh, and, and one of the things that she told me, being from the South, is that you, know, you just were expected to talk about faith with patients, uh, that that was an inco- important coping element for her, for her patients as well. well. I hear that all the time, all the time, on how important that is. And again, sometimes it's a, it's a situation that people avoid. Do you find that in, in hospital settings and clinical settings? Yeah, I think particularly in the U.S., you know, we are, um, you know, we don't mix church and state uh, 
supposedly, um, and that, you know, I always don't want to be judgmental about, you know, patients' beliefs. And so sometimes we go overboard. Um, I'm teaching uh, first-year doctoring and uh, to the medical students uh, this past year at Brown. We finished it. And they uh, spent um, a session on spirituality and how you talk to spirituality about spirituality with patients. So that may be changing. And, of course, when I was in Palestine, uh, you know, this was a very uh, Muslim, uh, Islam-oriented uh, part of the country, and the call to prayers went off five times a day. And often the people I were meeting with would say, I've got to go pray for five minutes. You know, and that was very much part of that culture. And so um, – other other places, you know, can do it differently. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I find with patients, I, I, ch- I, I check in. And if faith is part of their life, then helping them, reminding them to draw on that strength is important during difficult times. I, uh, I, I think that that's a beautiful thing that you incorporate that in because I, I think that that's, that helps so many people. And, you know, and if it's not, then you move on to the next thing. But, um, you know, it can settle people down and just make them feel appreciated and valued, you know, if you accept whatever religion they choose, whatever gives them comfort. Um, And, you know, we've gotten to a state here in the U.S. where with many things, everything's so divided. People are afraid to even let people know. Um, many different things about their life, which to me is really very, very sad um, because then we can't be authentic human beings. We can't be truly compassionate beings if we're not allowed in to know the the true story of who somebody is. And to me, that's all part of the packaging of living well, um, feeling balanced, feeling purposeful and accepted. I mean, there's just so many levels to all of that. Um, so kudos to you for for working that in and and educating you know the new doctors um, regarding that. Um, very very important. Very very yeah. important. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know one of the privileges of being a physician is this opportunity to sit on the sidelines of people's lives. Um, you know, as a coach or a helper or just as an observer sometimes and you know, cheer them on through the best and the worst of times. And, you know, I see how people cope and how people don't cope. And one of the things that I think was clear during uh, this last year with COVID is that people either figured out how to manage or thrive or didn't. And, you know, burnout became worse. Depression was worse. And then, uh, of course, we know of, uh, you know, some people took their own lives. There was a ER physician in New York who just couldn't set limits. Um, and, you know, some, someone young and bright who committed suicide. Uh, so I think those are reminders that uh, self-care is, is really important, that even though we feel like we are indispensable, uh, you know, we've got to take care of ourselves. Uh, and I heard that from some of the folks I interviewed as well, that uh, one of the gifts or the silver lining in this time was that they had to pay more attention to self-care. Otherwise, they just couldn't, you know, couldn't do what they had to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think for even the general public, um, being forced to slow down, has been eye-opening on how psychotic we've gotten with being busy, um, overly busy. I think a lot of people have taken that in and go, "Wow, I can I can breathe now. I I I know what it's like to relax." Because so often you would hear people say, even when they went on vacation, it took me two to three days to unwind, and I got you know two days in out of my seven-day vacation because then I started winding back up because I knew there was going to be a pile of stuff when I came back. So right, I, I think right. I think COVID has really gotten everyone to look at the importance of balance, the importance of relationship. I I know that I saw, and I'd like to hear if you saw this too, but a lot more families stepping up and stepping in 
that maybe weren't so active mm-hmm. before when they had a loved one in a community. And mm-hmm. um, and so staff were saying, well, where'd these guys come from? They're coming out of the woodwork now, <laughs> you know, and now we can't let them in. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I think people appreciate so much more what an essential worker um, does if it's a hospital, if it's a clinic, if it's a teacher, um, you know, I mean, there's so many levels. If it's in the grocery store, a truck driver, whatever, everybody now looks, I think, differently and um, hopefully going forward won't take everybody for granted, I think, like we have in the past, but be more appreciative that no matter who we are at whatever level, um, we have a, a gift that we're giving the world if it's if it's paid for or not in terms of our presence and what we what we what we do and how we do it and um you know i've seen a lot more people say you know i want to i want to volunteer a lot of people you know started delivering meals or writing letters to people in communities or i mean there were so many different levels that people could um volunteer and yet so many where they couldn't because it was shut down and some of it had to do with they they just couldn't even manage the volunteers with being in crisis with COVID. Um, But I'm hoping that some of that will be positive changes, you know, moving forward, um, that we've learned some lessons from all of this in terms of balance to to everyone and not being so one-sided when we look at a problem, but really looking at it from a greater scope of how is everyone impacted? Um, do you do you feel that yeah. change is coming, or maybe yeah. it's here? You know, I think yeah. Well, I think you know, hope is important, um, mm-hmm. and that you know, one of my favorite quotes is that. Uh, change is a given, growth is optional. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, not only did we have COVID, but we also had, you know, high tensions with the uh, George Floyd and kind of the birth of the Black Lives Matter. Um, I just talked to some of my colleagues in Palestine, and they're, you know, facing some very difficult times, but have seen some uh, bridges that are mm-hmm. happening despite the difficulty and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, you've got to keep putting uh, one foot in front of the other and find out why. You know, one of my um, uh, medical assistants, uh, essential workers, Marcella, you know, she, the thing that kept her going was her family. Um, And, you know, that was kind of the jewel for her, Uh, you know, for somebody else, uh, it was getting outside <laughs> that mm-hmm. kept them going and, and helped them to, you know, rejuvenate and feel ready to, you know, put one foot forward. And so I think the message is that, you know, you come through difficult times and, you know, figure out your way to move forward. And that, that the fact that you've done that is something to celebrate. Uh, and, and some of that is even thriving. Um, that, you know, doors close, but other doors open. And if you pay attention, you know, other opportunities come mm-hmm. um, that you don't expect. You know, I heard that, you know, one uh, physician decided to finally uh, do the additional training that she needed to specialize in obesity. Uh, she was very frustrated because she's from Honduras. Um, her Her parents had come from Honduras and her, the Spanish-speaking community in her city was hit very hard by COVID. Um, and, she, you know, she was really frustrated and exhausted, but she realized that by doing some additional training in obesity, because she had the time, because she was home more, um, you know, because her kids were homeschooling, that, you know, that was the silver lining for her. So it was really um, uh you know, good for my heart to hear how people find their, found their ways forward. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, sweet. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you have so many different stories in your book in terms of how people are affected. Was there, was there one that just really stood out to you and go, wow, this really has some beautiful lessons in this that I didn't, I didn't 
recognized before? Uh, so I think one was um, uh, Dr. Irene, and she was a physician that works in the uh, San Diego, very near the border. Um, and her uh, her medical assistant lives in Mexico because uh, her husband, uh, the medical assistant's husband was deported. And so in order to live as a family, and of course it's cheaper, she, um, they live in, uh, they live in Mexico and her medical assistant crosses the border every day. And when her medical assistant uh, came down with COVID, of course she was in Mexico and Dr. Irene was very worried about her. Um, and they would text each other and she had said, you know, if things take a turn for the worse, you call me, I'll meet you at the border, and I will make sure that you are uh, in the hospital here. Um, and so their kind of commitment to each other, uh, the uh, medical assistant did get better and made it back um, or came back to work, but it was the, she started back, it was her son's birthday <laughs> that she started back to work. Um, and so, you know, what, what kind of trans, uh, what was happening between them was really caring for each other as a work team. Uh, uh, Dr. Irene had her medical assistant's, you know, best heart, um, you know, in her heart, and the uh, medical assistant was really felt like it was really important to be there for Irene uh, to take care of the, you know, the patients in the clinic, and so that genuine commitment to being there for each other uh, was, you know, really beautiful to see. And uh, I go into a little bit more detail about, you know, how they, um, how they supported each other. But, uh, you know, that just that commitment and caring uh, was, was so important. Oops. My mic, I had it turned off, and it uh, didn't want to go back on there for a second. <laughs> well, that that is wonderful, and I do think, uh, you know, I do think COVID brought us closer, uh, made us appreciate each other. But it really is touching when you see somebody kind of really go out of their way um, to give someone else comfort, no matter how big or small that is. Um, it's just powerful to see that level of of compassion and humanity come into play in, in large, uh, large and small numbers, you know, all over the world. Um, I, I, like I said, as much as it's kind of like dementia, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but boy, if you step into this space, there's some big blessings wrapped in a really, really weird package. I kind of think COVID is the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That there, are, you know, but you're only going to find what you're looking for too. And if all you want to focus on is the doom and gloom, it'll be there for you. But if you want to learn right. some, you know, and feel some beauty, um, and learn some some beautiful lessons um, from from others, and maybe even change your own way of life and how you interact with people, those things are there too. Um, and they mm-hmm. allow us also to get creative in terms of. You know, businesses, how are we going to serve? How do we need to serve? How do we need to not just make money, but how do we make this sustainable um, for our clients, for our staff, and, and for ourselves? This, you know, to me, it really was a kind of a step back in terms of um, and looking hard at, you know what, none of us are going to make this if we don't do this together. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have, you know, and... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You know, and I think some of the essential workers um, that I talked to, you know, felt really cared for uh, and, uh, you know, were told to stay home. We don't want to see you if you're sick. And then I had somebody else who was said, well, you were exposed. Um, you know, you're not feeling sick. You know, come on in. And this particular uh, Jasmine was worried that she was going to expose, she worked in a group home, and she mm-hmm. was worried that she was going to ex- expose the clients, you know, yep. if she had picked up COVID uh, from her mother, who happened to be uh, uh, a nurse's aide, you know, who got mm-hmm. sick in a nursing home. So, you know, I think we saw examples, as you're saying, of genuine, you know, caring and concern, and look, we're in this together, and then 
uh, a lack of that. And, and, you know, maybe some opportunities, you know, we look at the domestic violence agencies and they were busier than ever. So, yeah. uh, you know, that living close in situations that aren't healthy, uh, you know, had, you know, played out in, in not good ways, but, you know, sometimes when the stakes, uh, are bad, it gives people opportunity to say, you know, is this what I signed up for? You know, is yep. there another way to think about this? Um, you know, if this is the way the job is going to treat me, if I have another opportunity, maybe I should look. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of these situations, I don't think anybody would wish COVID on anybody, or as you said, wish dementia on anybody. But, you know, there there are gifts. Um, and, you know, I'm not being Pollyanna or these are, are not platitudes. You know, this is, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of through the grit, you put one foot in front of the other and you, you know, you figure out to, what it takes to, uh, you know, to make lemons into lemonade. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the things I always say to myself when I, when I get myself in a pickle or when I'm feeling out of control, which a lot of people did during COVID is, is I I kind of have a talk with with God and the universe and I'm like what's the lesson here? You, I mm-hmm. I really don't think it was to put me through hell and back. I I think you're supposed to be teaching me something. So what what is it I am supposed to learn from this? And and what I found by just asking myself that simple question was that I I focused on an actual answer that could enhance things instead of just spinning in the minutia of the doom and the gloom and oh. And the worry, and not that that stuff's not valid. I'm not, I'm not saying that, folks, at all. But I'm saying that we can have more control over our, our thought patterns, our beliefs, and our actions um, if we want to. But in order to do that, sometimes we have to step out of even what our immediate family and friends are, are thinking and talking about and um, and kind of rescue ourselves and and look at the world you know, in a in a bigger vision of, wow. I mean, look at what look at what's happened with mental health. Um, people have really taken notice of that now, and says, man, we have to serve people very differently than what we have. You know, how long is it going to take us to to get a model that really works? Probably a few few years, but uh, but at least the conversation has come out of the closet, and people are seeing mm-hmm. how that has affected people in in so many different ways. Um, Teresa, I just so appreciate your time today. We're, we're down to a little over two minutes already. And so I, I want to make sure that we get people your contact information. And so people can go to your website, which is TeresaZink.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-S-E and then Zink, Z-I-N-K.com. Or you can email her by just going to her website and go to the About page and um, scroll down towards the bottom there, and there's a contact form, which is really easy to do. And, you know, you go to her site, it's really easy to, to find the book and to be able to go ahead and and order that uh, from there. But um, you're just such a valued resource, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to really look at this picture from such a wide, wide um, angle, because I really do think that that's so important. And um, and I love how, you know, how this is about our essential workers. I mean, they, we need to help them cope um, because we're nothing without them. That's the bottom line. I mean, they're the ones that have really pulled us through this crisis as much as we all like to think that we're in control and, you know, we have to appreciate one another and um, and listen to their stories. Anything you want to add? We've got about 40 seconds left. Yeah. Well, you are so gracious. Thank you. And I would say, you know, it was those essential workers who were the ones that were helping my mom and my sister, you know, mm-hmm. when they needed to go to the to the bathroom, <laughs> when they were, you know, confused and that, uh, you know, their caring was really important to me. Um, so, uh, you know, thank you for your caring and all the good work you're doing, Lori. Wonderful. Well, to again, talk to you. Yeah, it was nice, nice to have you on the show and to catch up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always look forward to what you're doing next because you are not one that slows down and just, uh, 
watch as life go by. You are an active role model for all of us. So thank you. And for you all, you know, you can always reach out to me at alzheimerspeaks.com. Take care, everybody. Love you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.